0: This is Radioactive. I'm Laura Jones. Every weeknight at 6 here at KRCL, we plug you into your community. From grassroots activists and community builders to punk rock farmers and DIY creatives. So coming up on tonight's show, Dr. Susan Madsen of the Utah Women and Leadership Project at Utah State University is back, this time to talk about the status of women in Utah politics, especially against the backdrop of the Utah legislature, which is about halfway through its 45-day session. The nonprofit's latest report highlights the good. 23.8% of Utah mayors are now women, a 6.5% increase from last year. And the places we need work. The number of women serving in the Utah State Legislature slightly below the national average, which means we rank at 39th among fellow states and women holding state elected office. Coming up next, going to pass the microphone to James Jackson III. He'll be in conversation with Melija Garfield of the Black Cultural Center at the University of Utah. Melija, just one of the many folks James profiled, in the new book from the Black Chamber, Black Utah Stories from a Thriving Community. But we're going to dive into rallies and resources right now, a list of upcoming events, both in real life and virtual. It is Black History Month, and the nonprofit Utah Film Center has a whole slate of movies for you to take advantage of online. You just have to reserve your seat. It won't cost you anything, however. Last night, they started screening Attica. In 1971, inmates at Attica State Prison seized control of D-Yard took 35 hostages after peaceful efforts for reforms failed. So this film investigates and reveals institutionalized injustices, sanctioned dishonesty, and abuses of power. It's available to stream through February 14th or until all tickets are reserved, whichever happens first. You just need to reserve your online ticket with the Utah Film Center. They've also got short films with study guides for Black History Month. Their website, utahfilmcenter.org. And lastly, today marks the start of the Clean Slate Law here in Utah. We're only the second state in the nation to adopt automatic record expungement. And earlier today, there was a press conference marking this momentous change. And I wanted to share with you some of the folks who spoke starting with Ron Gordon, Utah State Court Administrator, who in this clip explains what the state had to do to make automatic record expungement possible.
1: It's an exciting day for the state judiciary and for the state uh, in general. For the judiciary, this bill is all about access to justice. It's something about which the judiciary cares deeply, and it's something that is at the center of everything that we do in the judiciary. And we understand that there are sometimes barriers to access to justice. This law changes the landscape because it removes some of those barriers that contribute to barriers to housing and employment and other critical uh, life things like that. Our IT team working with uh, Code for America has developed an algorithm that scans court cases and identifies eligible cases and eligible individuals. For someone like me, it seems like magic. But it's not it represents literally thousands and thousands of hours of work on the part of our dedicated i.t professionals some of whom are here with us today our partners at code for america our partners at bureau of criminal identification uh, partnering with noella Sudbury. so many people who have contributed to this to help make sure that access to expungement and everything that is associated with it is not a barrier. So we have identified nearly 500,000 individuals who can benefit from this law, and today we begin that process of working to clear those records. We start with those cases that have been uh, dismissed, uh, that have resulted in acquittals. We begin processing those right away, over 200,000 of those cases. This isn't something that happens all at once. It's something that happens over time in the coming weeks and months, and it's something that we're very happy that we can be a part of with so many other wonderful people in the state. Thank you.
0: Ron Gordon, Utah State Court Administrator. And now I wanted to share one more voice from the press conference earlier today to mark the start of Utah's Clean Slate Law. This is Amy Dashell, who shared how she is directly impacted.
2: What a monumental and transformative day today is. As we all come together to talk about Utah's Clean Slate Law, Utah Clean Slate Law will impact over 400,000 individuals and clearing their misdemeanor records. I would like to take a moment and shed some light on how affected the individuals have been by that one sheet of paper printed out in black and white. What that paper doesn't show you is the individual getting up at 530 every morning to take two buses and a tracks to go 80 blocks to make it to treatment in time for months on end. What that piece of paper does not show you is the individual taking a $9 an hour job because that is all that they can get with a criminal record despite their professional history. What that piece of paper doesn't show you is this individual showing up to drug court every Wednesday for over a year complying with their court order, complying with their probation and graduating drug court as well as drug testing on their own dime every week. What this piece of paper does not show you is the 12 housing applications that this individual has placed, all to be denied in finding a place of their own to live. What this doesn't show you is this individual working two and a half years in the industry that aligns with their career, all to be set back to have to face an appeal with the Department of Human Services and it get every police report and write every explanation to every charge that you have. What it doesn't show is the two expungements this individual has already gone through and the thousands of dollars of money that they've had to put into this, knowing that they were gonna to have to face a third, but now with Clean Slate's law, they're not going to have to go through that third one. How much time has passed, right? Has enough effort passed? Finally, what you don't see is this individual who carries a full-time job, along with a part-time job, as well as being a full-time student to pursue a master's degree, to give back to a community that they love so much, knowing all the while that when they graduate, they will have to face that all-powerful piece of paper just to be licensed in the state that they want to serve in. The examples I have given you is actually my own personal story. Four and a half years, every day, showing up to prove that this piece of paper does not define me, a criminal. And let's be honest, the crime was against myself. I placed a needle into my arm and I was criminally charged. Since that day and every day after, I've had to continuously prove that I am more than my substance use disorder. I am not a victim. I take full ownership of my actions and my behaviors. I have put in my time, I have complied with every court order and every requirement that has been placed upon me, and I've sustained over four and a half years of recovery. However, I cannot fully integrate into society because of my perpetual record. Our system has long defined rehabilitation as obtaining sobriety. However, rehabilitation reaches so far beyond just being sober. Clean Slate bridges that gap between rehabilitation and reintegration. If we only provide a way of sobriety and further enforce the barriers to prevent reacclimation, can we really ask why individuals recidivate? Thank you. Noella Sudbury, thank you, Governor Cox, and thank you for the many teams that have come together to make this possible, to help us all be able to fully reintegrate back into our life and become a member of society again. Thank you for seeing the individual, for not what they've done, but for what they've overcome. Thank you.
0: Amy Daschle, sharing how the Clean Slate Law, which took effect today, directly affects her. She's just one, but perhaps the most important voice from today's press conference at the Utah Capitol. Check tonight's show notes for a link, and you can watch it in its entirety. Those were just some of the clips from the event. And now it's time to pass the microphone to James Jackson, the third of the Utah Black Chamber, for another conversation from the book, Black Utah, Stories from a Thriving Community.
3: Well, thank you, Laura. And it's so excited to be here as we um, still not only celebrating Black History Month, but celebrating the launch of and release of the book Black Utah, published by the Utah Black Chamber. And we're extremely fortunate to have one of the people who we interviewed for that book, uh, Mr. Melijah Garfield, Director of the Black Cultural Center. Thanks for joining us this morning, Mr. Garfield.
4: Hello, hello. How are you doing, James?
3: Man, doing good. Sometimes I feel like we sh- this should be a reverse role because everybody goes to you to be the voiceover and the person on the radio. So, you know, I, it's, I, I, I feel like I need to step my game up whenever I'm talking to you.
4: <laughs> I appreciate it. I appreciate it. <laughs>
3: yeah. So was that is that something that you've always had as like a, like a side hustle or things that you always kind of done on the side is like voiceovers, radio spots and so forth?
4: Uh, Yes, Um, I think I had actually it was a teacher in high school that told me it was like hey Malaysia, uh, I think you have a talent. I'm going to put you in contact with some people and then I would say it was from like uh, my senior year of high school all the way until now pretty much I've always kind of done it as a hobby it's something I enjoy
3: yeah awesome. That's good. You know, I've been told I have like a little radio voice or a podcast voice, but then I, then I hear you. I was like, no, my voice doesn't sound like that. (laughs) (laughs) So awesome. Um, So you've been in Utah for, is is this your third year in Utah now?
4: It will be my third year in about two months. In about
3: two months. Mm -hmm. Um, Would you say that Utah has met your expectation exceed expectations or not met expectations like what what was how have you felt so far as you've been here for a short little time besides you know finding your bride you know because obviously that's going to exceed your expectations i'd imagine
4: (laughs) i mean yes that has exceeded my expectations uh i would say that yeah utah has definitely exceeded my expectations um especially the amount of people that are just moving here um I wouldn't have known. I was just like, upon taking this position, I was like, okay, I'm going to Utah. This is what it's gonna be. I know that there were black people here because you just have to dig a little bit and research. There are black people here, but I was just like, yeah, you know, I'm gonna put my head down and see what happens. Um, And when I got here, I was just like, oh, okay. There are people doing things, the people that have have a rich history here in Utah, um, especially the black folks that have been here. Um, For decades, and they've been doing amazing things. And so, really, uh, yeah, I was kind of, it exceeded my expectations. I've kind of fell in love with just the the valley. Um, I would say more so Salt Lake County than anything, but, you know. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) But I I have enjoyed Utah. Uh, It's been good. Um, My only thing is this yes, I wish more people realize the potential that it has and that they stayed longer. Um, that's my only gripe is just, it's a lot of people that come and then leave. And so I've noticed that in just a short amount of time I've been here and I made some friendships and then they ended up going, I'm just like, ah, okay. So we gotta start over again. So how do yeah. I uh, make sure that, you know, uh, we can try to keep some po- folks here, but yeah.
3: What are some things that you have worked on or try to do to try to help in in the retention? I mean, that's one of the reasons why we put out the book um, is to you know give people the perspective. Like there are some change makers here as things are growing. Like you know just hold on a little longer, kind of deal, like you just said. But what are some things that maybe you that you have tried to do, or maybe some advice to others here that we can try to do to help people acclimate, integrate, um, and just get get more connected and stay here. Yeah,
4: uh, so a couple of things I would say. The, the first uh, thing that I had realized that we needed to kind of do is kind of just bring people together to have conversations. Um, and so I've done a thing called Let's Talk About It in which I just bring folks together um, and we kind of talk about random topics, kind of putting things out there on the table um, and having unexpected conversations. And I think it's drawn a lot of community together to kind of just talk about things. Um, I would say also the Black Cultural Center just kind of helping uh, you know in the community as far as in connecting students to the larger um, Black community here in Salt Lake City as well as Utah itself. Um, also just connecting students to uh, you know just different opportunities that they may be able to you know come a fall either it falling up in their lap or really putting themselves out there to be into the circles and things of that nature. And so I think it's really has helped on having just a center point here on campus as a Black Cultural Center uh, for students, faculty, and staff to kind of come together and be like, okay, this is a space for us to kind of thrive. And then they, um, Elijah can definitely, or Sarah, which is also in our office, can be a, really a cultural conduit uh, for us to connect to larger resources such as the Black Chamber or um, different but NAACP or other resources here um, here in
3: the Valley. Yeah. Awesome. When you, going back to what you say about let's talk about it, what are some things that came to light that maybe you were surprised by that you didn't expect as far as like why people feel either not comfortable here yet or thinking about leaving? Um, Cause I'm always curious, you know, being a native here, I already see the beautiful landscape and, you know, it's easier for me to pitch it and sell it, And when I hear people, they're like, ah, forget it. And they're just leaving. I'm like, well, what's wrong, right? So what are some things that may have, you know, Mm -hmm. you not being a native and you're being a short amount in time, what things maybe may have caught you off guard?
4: Uh, So I've had um, being in my late twenties and then having that demographic of just people, you know, young professionals that have just kind of started in their career paths. Um, or at least they have been in a couple of years, but really still are fairly mm-hmm. new. Um, the biggest concern that people have had um, and, and the age demographic I had is the majority of people are single. And it just says dating is not it here yeah. uh, for <laughs> for them. And so they've been really just trying to figure out, okay, uh, what does it look like as far as in me, um, you know, actually having a they can have a social life because that's pretty easy. We have Black folks. We have other folks here that would love to have a social life with folks. But like to have a dating life, to really feel like they um, can meet others, it has been a challenge Challenge, where a lot of people have told me that it has been a challenge here in Utah. Um, I would say the other thing is really just largely um, those that are not single, but are starting to uh, make families, you're just a little concerned about what does it look like um, as far as in raising their children, maybe not necessarily in like Salt Lake City, uh, but in other places in Utah. Um, really kind of raising a child in school districts that may have had racist attacks or things of the picture. Um, and so they're like, oh, I don't know. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, I would say that dating I mean, the last thing, just uh, the amount of cost of living uh, has mm-hmm. been another concern as well. Um, but there's been some some movement around that as far as in cost of living. Um, but folks have definitely been saying, OK, I came out here from New York or, or L.A. or um, Texas, even in some aspects. I'm getting paid more, but the cost of living is skyrocketing. Um, and so. They're, they're just trying to find how they fit into that in that aspect, but
3: yeah. Yeah, no, that, that, the cost of living, you know, that, that came as of recent, cause before that wasn't as big of an issue and it's like a huge issue now, but going back to the dating, I mean, that's one of the main reasons why I was excited to have you and Alicia talk about <laughs> it in the book, because, you know, having black love here is not, you, you know, people don't see that often. Um, we talking about the, the, the dating life, you know, not everyone else is as fortunate as Elijah and Alicia. And I'll never forget one time there was a professor at the U, um, black woman here who moved here from Detroit. Mm. She lasted maybe a year and a half. She's like, I can't find a mate here. Um, you know, and I was like, ah, oh, it's always a struggle, but so <laughs> what, how did, how did, how did, how did it help? What? how did you end up finding love here? Like, what advice can you share? Was it just the luck Mm. of the draw? Was it like godsend? I mean, you know, what was it like, what, what type of encouragement do you give people about, you know, finding, you know, dating life here?
4: Ooh. uh, The advice I would, well, first I would say, of course, I think it was just the right. um, We just met at the right time and kind of our past kind of collided. Um, And not to get into the story of of how we came together, but it didn't start off as us wanting to date. It was, hey, Malaysia, I'm with Curly Me, you are the Black Cultural Center. Can we talk? And and then it blossomed into something more beautiful. Mm -hmm. Um, But the advice that I would give, and I mean, you can take it or leave it, uh, the folks that are listening. I, I would really just say, put yourself out there um put yourself out there take some chances um and really be assertive um believe it or not alicia <laughs> and she'd be like malasha <laughs> alicia uh, Mal- alicia asked me up so it was her taking a proactive chance and saying hey you know this is something let's see what what, what we can do about, about this you seem like a good guy." I'm going to ask you. And so I'm not saying that all women have to do that, but really, really just uh, kind of take a proactive chance, see what you can do, um, and really put yourself out there. Um, and you would be fine. You might be surprised. There's several people that are moving here. There's also people that have been here for decades that are also looking for love. And you just... The, the biggest thing is putting yourself out there, putting yourself in those circles, putting yourself out there to socialize with other individuals that are doing amazing things that um, they also have interests and are looking for love as well.
3: Mm, I love that. So a, couple, a few things I got out of that is, um, um, one is, you know, first get connected to the community, you know, and be, you know, and just stay engaged and eventually something will come. Mm-hmm. Um, and two, you know, you're talking about put yourself out there just a little bit. I mean, Alicia's been here a lot longer than you. I say about double um, double the amount of time. And I think in our books you mentioned or in our, in our interview, I'm not sure, but I can't remember if it was mentioned in the book or not, but she, you know, she 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 was almost near that point of giving up or just gave up. It was like, hey, ain't mm-hmm. happening here, right? <laughs> and and just happened to step in like, don't give up, I'm here. <laughs> so it's actually surprising that she was the one that asked you out because she, she's like, man. If it comes, it comes. If it doesn't, it doesn't. But that goes to your point. Like, just put yourself out there, you know, a little bit. You never, you never know, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and then thirdly, actually, I lost what the third one was, but um, you know, I think where where we're at, and I think one one of the main another reasons why I, I made this book happen for the chamber was just to get people to know all the different organizations that are out there, not only the change makers are doing great work, but mm-hmm. also all the different organizations out there as well that people could get plugged into. Um, so as we about to wrap up here, how people outside of the University of Utah, um, Black or non-Black, how can they get engaged with the Black Cultural Center?
4: Ah, uh, good, good question, good question. Um, if you're out in the community, and again, you don't have to be black being out in the community, um, I would say definitely follow us. Um, you can go to our website, diversity.utah.edu or diversity.utah.edu slash BCC. Um, you can also find us on social media, U of bcc either on Instagram or Twitter or Facebook. Um, yeah, kind of, you know. F- you can look at it as far as in any of the social medias or websites. And then on top of that, um, you can find me, i um, Elijah uh, G at, uh, on Instagram. And I would love to connect you to the center. Um, I'm always open as far as in having this conversation or if people want to be connected to students or faculty and staff, I'm your, I'm your, I'm at service. I'm your cultural conduit. So.
3: Love it. So with that, like what, Black History Month, I mean, you and I, like it's it's, it's a busy time of the month. Um, maybe more for you being at the university. Um, and I imagine that you're kind of leading the charge for the university on Black History Month. What kind of things did you do you guys have going on?
4: Ooh, uh, several kind of things. Um, what is it? Next week is a very, actually the next two weeks are pretty big. Um, we have next week um, conversations about Black men in media and representation of media with a person named paul miller aka dj spooky um which he'll actually be performing on the thursday next week um he has a show he's a professor at princeton i believe um but he has a show called rebirth of a nation um and he basically remixes um birth of a nation the movie the historic uh, racist movie he remixes it with some music and has some dialogue into it and really depicting or tearing apart the depictions of Black men in, in, that, in that movie. Um, and so that will, that's nice, that'll be happening next week. Um, we also have Douglas Day, um, which will be on the Tuesday, um, where we're transcribing and digitizing historically Black documents, um, which is also a national thing that's going on. Um, and then the following week, um, we're also celebrating our third birthday of the Black Cultural Center. Um, February 26, and also we'll be celebrating um, 12 individuals, uh, Black faculty and staff um, who are on this campus that have been paving the way. We have an awards banquet called our Black Faculty and Staff Awards, uh, which is on our our birthdays on that last Saturday of this month.
3: Three years already, man, I can't believe it. Three years, yes. (laughs) Yeah. Well, Well, I mean, and then two of those years have been going on during a pandemic. so um what has that been like trying to run a cultural center right where it's really based upon relationships but relationships of course have been distant right you have to be the social (laughs) distance so how have you been able to keep people engaged during during this time
4: uh i'm gonna be honest with you it has been challenging um and this is not just like the black cultural center but just centers like us um here at the campus rather be the women's resource center or us or the center for ethnic student affairs or so on and so forth like we've had a challenge in engaging students um, because a lot of the students now they're like i'm tired of zoom i don't want to do on zoom anymore. mo can we meet in person i'm just like yes but limited numbers and like no i don't want to do that <laughs> um and so I, it has definitely been a challenge but i think the biggest thing is st- especially since we open like fully back um, this fall um, this past fall fully opening back up open, really just encouraging people that hey this is a home away from home. this is a space that you can come to if you just want to kick it, if you just want to meet other like-minded individuals if you just want to relax uh, and you know really learn about yourself um, and those that are also looking to learn about black culture um, and so, Yeah, uh, we've definitely just pushed the message of that you belong here and that you also have a place here at the university, but also here in Utah. Yeah.
3: Yeah. How has those conversations been going on lately, given the fact that, you know, what's happening in legislature right now, we're trying to get ethnic studies to be more engaged in, 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 in school curriculum, um, Get, you know, And they have this, this shadow of it all called CRT, that's like this controversial word when we're really just trying to say like, you know, black history is, a, is American history. So what have those conversations been like?
4: Ooh, we just had a conversation yesterday, um, one of our reframing the conversations um, for our division. And it was about like addressing uh, why we must address anti-black racism. And with that, there was a lot of talk about CRT And the aspect what i've been trying to tell a lot of folks rather be out in the Community or folks that just don't may not get it as much here on campus. That it is really about how do we make sure that we have inclusive history inclusive narratives inclusive mindsets um, that is not just a standardized, this is what it is, this is how it's gonna always be, no, no. Uh, There's been contributions, not only of just Black folks, but people of color that have been here before the country's founding, Uh, Native Americans, Latinx folks, Black folks that have contributed so much to this country and how it is supposed to be, and for their narrative, or not even their narrative, because that could be kind of a loaded term, but their history, their perspectives, their lives, to not be told is can be troubling. And so I appreciate in the aspect uh, the chamber doing the book Black Utah uh, because it shares even just a piece of some of those narratives in um, that history and the perspectives of, of Black voices because yeah, there's a war going on. There's a war into the war on not allowing us to sh- have voices of many different perspectives. And for us, there's a war going on on not having inclusive history. Uh, and it's not right, it's not good, uh, but hey, we're, we're trying to have those conversations with folks to make them understand that CRT is not a bad term. It is, it honestly is only really taught in graduate school, but the term itself is, if you boil it down to just a simple term, it is really, how do we have inclusive, inclusive narratives, inclusive history of our people? Uh, rather be black rather be Latinx rather be Asian rather be uh, Native American uh, those perspectives that have contributed so much to this country um yeah we, we need to share those inclusive narratives but yeah
3: and I think where people get mixed up is that we think in like Crt is sharing all the negativity like bring all the negativity out but what <laughs> from you're saying it's like let's bring all of it not just the negative stuff, Yes. But also the, all the all the contributions, all the positive stuff, right? Let's not leave that out, right? It's like, exactly. let our history be told, you know, prior to Columbus coming here, prior to, you know, U.S. becoming the actual country, right? We've done some amazing things here. We just want that to be known,
4: right? Exactly. <laughs> exactly. And that that's the thing. It's a war against that. And so, like so I said, I appreciate the efforts that are that are happening in these streets, I would say, uh, <laughs> as well as on campus, to really just make sure that we understand that it, it, we're here to stay. Um, and then those narratives are very much important. Our history, us as a people, um, across the board, uh, BIPOC um, individuals, that we're here to stay. But yeah.
3: Awesome. Well, Elijah, thank you so much for joining us and sharing. Um, Thanks for all you're doing at the Black Cultural Center. And I look to be engaged a whole lot more. And if you want to learn more about Malaysia Garfield and Alicia Darrow's Garfield, then you know you can purchase the book, Black Utah. It's available on Amazon. Um, and we feature a little bit about, about them as well and their background and how you can really find this Black love here. I just love you guys as a couple. I mean, <laughs> I saw you guys together. And I was like, oh, look at that. It's just y- y'all is just fun. So I appreciate you guys. No, I appreciate you. Thank you. All right. Turn it back to you, Laura.
0: James Jackson III, founder of the Utah Black Chamber, which just published Black Utah stories from a thriving community, featured in it tonight's guest, Melijah Garfield. Check tonight's show notes for a link to pick up a copy of Black Utah for yourself. I'm Laura Jones. This is Radioactive. And when we come back, the latest research on the status of women in Utah politics from the Utah Women and Leadership Project. And to get us there, Black Myself from Amethyst Kia on KRCL.
2: Support for KRCL comes from our listeners and the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. The Utah Black Artists Collective connects and showcases artists of color throughout the state. The nonprofit also offers a mentorship program for young artists of color. More details at ublack.org. That's U-B-L-A-C org. Send your Valentine a love note on the radio. Valentine's Day is Monday, February 14th and we're playing cupid with krcl love notes call the love note hotline and leave a message or shout out for that special person or even a local organization call 801-903-1279 To leave your love note. Then tune in KRCL Monday, February 14th from 6 a.m. to 6 p.m. to hear love songs, breakup songs, makeup songs, and listener love notes on air. Find the number and details at krcl.org.
0: Welcome back to Radioactive. I'm Laura Jones. Coming up at 7 on KRCL, it's Democracy Now. Thursday night, Psych Out at 8 with DJ Mike. The Dirty Boulevard at 10.30. Rich checks in at 1 a.m. with I Don't Sound Like Nobody, followed by Illustrated Blues at 3, and then John Florence kicks off your Friday at 6 a.m. And a unique legislative update tonight. I wanted to check in with Dr. Susan Madsen, founder and director of the Utah Women in Leadership Project at Utah State University and she has a couple of briefs recently that I think play into the legislative session not the least of which is about women in politics the state of women in Utah politics a 2022 update and also child care a recent brief and of course bills circulating on Utah's Capitol Hill about that issue I got her on Zoom to find out more Hi, Dr. Madsen, how are you? Great, how are you? Doing well, doing well. So we're in the midst of this 45 day general session of the Utah legislature. And there's always stuff that gets my goat, (laughs) gets me going. And I always love it when you drop something in the middle of the session that speaks to politics in Utah. Let's talk about the state of women in Utah politics. How
5: are we doing? good, bad, or indifferent. Let's dig into this, shall we? That sounds great. So I I wasn't actually planning on doing another brief in 2022. We did our first in 2014, then one in 2017, then one last year. However, there was some shuffling around, we know, in the fall uh, with um, municipalities. And so we had so many people asking us, where are we at? Are we making progress that that we went ahead. I pulled together a team, um, some great people, great volunteers, and and contractors for us that pulled this together. So, so some things we haven't made progress on. <laughs> some things we've made some good progress on. It matters uh, what level you're you're talking about because I we're seeing some more progress actually at the local levels, although. Not not every local level, you know, but some. Let's progress. talk about the mayor's office. That shall is we? our good news right there. So um, so this percentage may not strike uh, our listeners as as a big percentage. I'll, I'll give it to you twenty three point eight percent. So almost twenty four percent now of the mayors in Utah are women. So that may not seem big, but listen to this. It's actually an increase just in one year uh, by 6.5%. And since our last report in 2017, it's gone up about 15%. So, so that's pretty substantial. That's our real good news on the mayor front is that we really are having more representation of women, more women running too.
0: Well, you also say in your latest brief that Utah's largest cities have more female leadership. What's your gut feeling on why this is?
5: What's, what's interesting, it's interesting as well, because some rural areas have great women, you know, in, in positions, and then others just don't. But in terms of cities... I think uh, there's just more energy, there's more awareness, there's more discussions in in larger cities of diversity and inclusion. And there's also been, when you look at like salt, the Salt Lake mayor, the Salt Lake City, there's been a history of women for a number of years serving in those roles. I think in terms of our bigger cities, when, when people get used to a woman being in a top spot like that, they then are more comfortable voting for women after them
1: it's (laughs)
5: fascinating in fact when you when we looked anecdotally at our rural cities some you know like canab has a history of having all women years and years ago on, on their city council we really looked back and and when there's been women through the decades here and there you see more women today. If you don't see that decades ago, you don't see women in those positions. So, so you can't be what you can't see, right? Right. Now you mentioned Kanab. <laughs> this was
0: 1912, <laughs> and then the men weren't happy about that. I I <laughs> seem to recall something from you know. Our our uh, folks over at what's the nonprofit uh, Better Days twenty twenty. <laughs> thank you. Our, our our folks over at Better Days twenty twenty made a point of this story about huge advance nineteen twelve, and then the men usurp their power. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> better today though, and and let's run some of those stats because okay, Utah has according to your data thirty four cities with more than thirty thousand in population, and leadership there has grown. Yeah
5: Absolutely. The difference, of course, you know, we still see pure numbers, more more women's spots in those little tiny cities, because there's more little tiny cities in the state of Utah. However, you know, overall, uh, again, about 24% are, are, are of the mayors now in the state of Utah um, are women, Um, and so we did do track them by uh, population, which is important, and we do that for city councils too. So we're almost, Laura, almost at about 30% of city councils being um, women, And, and we didn't see a big jump. We saw quite a big jump last year. We didn't see as big of a jump, but I have to say that that's approaching are the research that says about 30% is the tipping point. So we're Mm. getting there. We're approaching that. We're still below the national average on that, but we're really making some progress and still have some work to do though. You know me. I'm always like, there should be,
0: there's still work to do. Well, okay. So when you did this report the last time in 2017, there are only three cities of population 30,000 above that had female mayors. And in 2022, there are- Huge.
5: That's a huge jump. That is- uh, a handful of years. Yeah, absolutely. So there's, there's some really good jumps there. Um, and we're seeing that again at that local level, I have to do say, you know, we have to get to the bad news, but (laughs) okay, wait, wait, go one more. Okay. Okay. A little bit (laughs) of sugar
0: before the bad. And that is that Provo, Salt Lake city, Sandy and West Valley city all have female mayors. Yeah. Okay.
5: That's really big. Well then that's and and I'll stay over here for just a minute. When we look at the (laughs) city council though, the other thing is there's a few more, and I'm trying to get this report up as we're talking to remind me which cities, but there are some other cities that have, uh, you know, maybe they have four spots of city council members and three of the four or six of the seven are all women. So there's some cities that we did highlight um, that, that, that they're really having a majority. So even in the last year, the following municipal councils increased seats held by women. So Woodruff went from zero to three of four seats held by women. Vineyard, Circleville, Rock, or uh, Rocky Ridge, and um, Tabiona went from one seat to three of four seats held by women. So some of these small towns have really flipped. In addition to these, the following councils are now majority women: South Salt Lake has six of seven. We still want men, though. You know, we've talked about that. How it's important to do that. Murray, uh, four of five. Cleveland, Alta, Clarksville, and uh, Uh, Mill Creek have three or four. So it's just interesting. I mean, we're not saying again that women need to take over all seats and we just need all these boards with just women. It's the combination of men and women. So you do want uh, to keep at least one man in the, or two men.
0: (laughs) Well, we, we, uh, the royal we, women have been saying if there were just more women in the room making decisions that things would be different. So I'm kind of curious for the Utah Women in Leadership Project, as as the um, balance, the gender balance starts to tip in favor of women, you're gonna have to start tracking whether what we had hoped
5: would yes. happen by having women making decisions actually yeah, happen. Absolutely. And we know from the research out there that the women and men's priorities are often different, not every time. And so having that representation of really making sure funding is allotted more, more broadly or more, um, you know, a re- holistically, yeah, holistically even, I even think. The
0: community. So, so yes. can we okay, go to the
5: bad news now?
0: Yes, I was going to say, let's talk let's talk to the badness. And you might have to ha- pull out a gem of, of goodness to wrap <laughs> us up. But uh, talking with Dr. Susan Madsen, Utah Women in Leadership Project, and the new policy brief about the status of women in Utah politics. This is a 2022 update hitting right in the middle of the legislative session. And that's part of the bad news. The number of women serving in the Utah State Legislature, slightly below the national average and county leadership, a mixed bag for women. So let's talk about state lawmakers
5: so that's great Uh, yeah with with your comment about counties we do see very low numbers still with those commissioner spots Right. And um, and and of course, when you get to treasurers or clerks, you're going to see higher numbers. But we definitely need more women running for county commissioner spots in the state in terms of uh, I'm going to flip over to to Congress, because we there are two Senate seats, as as everyone probably knows. But in, in Utah, we have four House of Representatives seats. And we continue to have no women serving in those six uh, positions. And that really is, Laura, a, a disadvantage for our state. It's and not- Mia Love was the
0: last one She was. at the national level. And there's only,
5: only really been four through the years. We've had no, ever, not ever had senators, um, but we've only had four. And so that's, that's uh, at this point we have six men and you know, people have different feelings about that, uh, about the the attic. You know how they're doing in terms of the roles. But what we know, even if they're great people, we know that that we just have different insights and priorities. And so, it really is a disadvantage for Utah not to have a minimum of one woman serving in in uh, our c- Congress. So that's really something that continues to kind of weigh on us. Um, but, but the challengers, though, are coming because yeah, you have two yes. female Republicans
0: and one female Democrat yeah. vying for a national seat now to represent Utah.
5: Absolutely, and and it'll be interesting to watch how they. Um, in my opinion, both of the the women you know running for the Senate seat have such great backgrounds and great. Allie Isom, yeah, Becky Edwards, yeah, great backgrounds, great preparation for for these roles. But again, we're so used to seeing men in those roles. Um, um, and and can can we do something there? You know, it'll be interesting to just watch and see what happens there. The
0: Democrat uh, woman challenging uh, Burgess Owens yeah. McDonald. Just want to make sure since we're mentioning all the women yes. running.
5: There we go. I just did. I just saw that. So um, that's that's uh, that'll be all of them will be very interesting to watch. And hopefully we can just all as as residents and citizens, you know, just go back and really open our minds to biases and say, let's just look and see really who would be best for our state. So it'll be interesting to watch. So we do track state executive offices. And in the state of Utah, we have five there. and we, uh, through the years, we haven't had very many. We've only had a couple women in throughout all the years. Oline Walker, of course, beloved, you know, Oline Walker served in had had those positions, and their Jan Graham years and years ago. But because of our lieutenant governor, we have one. In that position now, Henderson. Yeah, yeah. So we went from zero percent um, to twenty percent because we have, like I said, five positions: the governor, lieutenant governor, the attorney general, the treasurer. I'm forgetting the last one. Auditor. Oh um, uh, yeah, auditor. As, so, so that one we're looking a little bit better, still 10% below the national average there. And then the last category we really haven't talked about, we, we didn't talk about boards of education, um, you know, years through the years, but we're, we're getting almost on par with the nation in terms of women on boards, but on those boards of education uh, around the state. But in terms of our state legislature, that's a really important one, right? And that's what's going on now. And uh, as of this report, we are 26%. We're still well below the national average, but we've been tracking it since uh, we have data from 1971. Wow. And um, and our, starting 81, we have our rankings. So how do we rank compared to the national average? Give it to us. And, and actually, you know... we were 36th and clear back in 1981. We have, that's when we have found the rankings and we were 36th um, at at only about 8% of women. Today, we are 39th. So we've been like 40th, 46th. So we're a little bit better. Although 2017, we're, we're 35th, but we can't you know, we, we need to get to jump, you know, jump in those uh, rankings, but we have 26%. Now that's actually the highest that we've ever had. However, we stay low in the rankings because other states are making progress faster than we are. Does that make sense? Yes. Other states are outpacing us. I think
0: one of the things that really holds back women uh, happens to be childcare, and you did a recent brief, and there are some bills about childcare or that would uh, help women with childcare. I'm not asking you for an update on those bills, but if you could just briefly tell us when it comes to childcare in Utah, what are the biggest barriers or challenges that women and families face? in obtaining childcare and what that means in terms of their participation in society?
5: Oh, that's such a good question. We have some reports on that. And we, we just released last month a report where we had a whole team, great people on this team, look at Every single state in the nation, figure out what kinds of policies we could put forth uh, to really help Utah jump in into. I don't know if it's the next decade, the next century, really be caught. get our act together. Well, I think what we know is a lot of people do not understand in Utah that childcare is a really serious issue, and in fact. Yesterday, I was out in Vernal in the Uinta Basin, and I was speaking at an event, and I talked about child care, and I said, is this an issue here? Oh my, everybody was nodding their heads, raising their hands, absolutely. So it's not just the Wasatch Front, it's around. Some people say, well, we have a lot of women who stay at home, so we probably have a lot of child care. However, we are really struggling, and companies are struggling, companies are having to to bring together childcare. So big issues are access to quality childcare and then the affordability. One of the most interesting things Laura is that in our report and in our research we have found that the US Treasury actually in quote marks says that childcare is a market failure. What it what it means is, you know, when you when you have a product or whatever you need to be making the you know you 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 work on how much it costs to develop the product to to get the product out and then you need to make enough money you sell it for enough money to cover your costs you can't in childcare what that means is that what's fascinating is to look at how complex it is so childcare is super unaffordable for a lot of people. They, they just can't afford it because it's expensive. So childcare is expensive. Yet people who offer childcare, who work in childcare, who are providers, actually, many of them live in poverty. They don't make enough to make a profit. So here you have something that's not affordable for parents, most parents, yet the people charging don't make enough to really have. And so there's this gap in the middle where it's like, if we don't actually have government help, then how are we going to continue? Because if you want to make a profit and you actually have a job, why do childcare if you're not going to make money?
0: Yeah, well, and having more women in the rooms where these decisions are made when it comes to spending our tax dollars could significantly affect this issue in particular. We're seeing with the great resignation, so-called yes. great resignation, but also the effect of the pandemic, women having to give up their jobs in order to to take care of the children at home and school them instead of uh, being out in the workforce where they may want to be or have to be. And um, as you note in your white paper on the complex landscape of childcare, the Biden administration's Build Back Better package um, has some proposals that would mean no family is paying more than 7% of their income on child care. Oh, that it were.
5: Oh, that it were possible. And I was just uh, talking to another group on a, um, on a radio show and talked about the poverty brief that we just put out. And if you are a single mother and you have kids under the age of five, seven, of you in the state of Utah will be living in poverty. So what I mentioned was, if you're a single mom, you have two kids so young, and maybe you don't have an education, which we have a lot of women that don't, and you want to work, you want to go out there and be in the workforce, the cost of trying to even remotely, let's say you make $15 an hour, or, or even 20, two kids, single mom, how do you even pay for that? I mean, childcare is expensive. So, so there's really this, um, I don't know what the word I'm looking for. This, this a push goal, Yeah. Yeah. To try and make that work. Um, of course, uh, two parents, uh, you know, uh, partners in the home or spouses in the home, uh, make it a little bit easier, um, in some ways, but still even from mid, mid, um, you know, income families, it really is a stretch to try and figure out childcare. It's a real stress, too. So it's not just the cost and access and affordability and all of that. It's that, and mothers feel it stronger than anybody. It's that stress, that worry. Is my child going to have a good experience? Are they going to be safe? Uh, and mothers really take the emotional labor.
0: It only becomes a barrier to uh, not only the workforce, Participating in the workforce, but running or holding elected office, I I don't know, I can't recall the last time I've heard a male running for office being asked, well, what do you, what about your children? How are you going to be able to do this? But it's a pretty typical question that women on on the campaign trail still get asked. Well, aren't you a mother? How are you going to have? To, will you be able to fully all that baloney? That ends up being part of the conversation for women still occurs. Yeah. It, and of course, I refer you to the sexist comments yes. uh, study that Utah
5: Women in Leadership pro-
0: Project does.
5: Absolutely. And you know what? It's it's something that, that even me as a woman, often I think that because it's what we've been socialized. I mean, I look at a woman running for office and I'm thinking more, I wonder, you know, she looks like she's at the age. She's got these kids at home. I wonder how she's swinging it. I mean, so even if I don't say it, we're just socialized to think that. And we're just not socialized to think about that for men. So we have to, even me, you know, I'm working on this. I'm working on my unconscious bias, um, but it's still a struggle, even though I'm in a, on a journey. So it's, it's not, we can't, we got to be careful not to shame everybody on this. We have to help people understand, let's learn and grow together. And, and we, it's important to do that. Well,
0: Dr. Madsen, thank you so much for yet another great report, brief, policy, snapshot. All this data enables us to have conversations uh, of both a qualitative and quantitative nature, and we can't look away. Where can people find all this online?
5: Thank you for asking, Uh, utwomen.org is our easy URL. And so if you uh, go there under the research tab, you'll be able to see all of our different reports. Uh, the childcare one is under a white paper and our latest political brief is under um, briefs. So I, we welcome, we have other resources as well, podcasts and, and uh, infographics and videos from our events. Dr. Madsen, thank you so much. Thanks so much.
0: Dr. Susan Madsen, founder and director of the Utah Women and Leadership Project at Utah State University. Check tonight's show notes for a link to their latest study on the status of women in Utah politics or the status of Utah women in politics. Either way, it is a fascinating read and points to where we need to go next in terms of getting more women into elected office in the Beehive State. Thank you for plugging into your community with Radioactive on KRCL. I'm Laura Jones. Have a great night.